a real Greek salad, a simple dish called dakos, and using your tattoo to get a passport. This week, we're talking to Nora Dunn, the professional hobo, about the island of Crete. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, and this is Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we take a trip to a different foodie destination and try all the unique dishes there and find some fun things to do as well. And this week, it's the island of Crete. But before we get there, let me remind you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. I'm available on every podcast platform, including iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify. Nora Dunn was a financial planner who became a traveler dubbed the professional hobo. Now, Nora and I talked a while ago before the pandemic really took hold, but we talked about something that's very relevant to the pandemic world that we're living in now, and that's working from home. But mostly, Nora and I talk about her recent stint living in Crete, cheeses from mild to stinky feet, getting offered moonshine when shopping for jewelry, and the funniest tattoo story that I've ever heard. So let's jump right into the island of Crete with the professional hobo, Nora Dunn. Destination, eat, drink. I came across your website and I thought, hobo, you know, that's not a word I've heard probably since I'm a kid. And then I thought, what exactly does hobo mean? So I looked it up and I said, this is the perfect name for you because the the words that they gave is bum, tramp, and hobo. And then they defined each one. And they said, a bum is a person who never works. A tramp is a person who goes from place to place and only works when needed. And a hobo is a person who goes from place to place and works at every place. And I thought, Nora's on to something. She, she really thought this through carefully and deciding upon the name professional <laughs> hobo, but it sounds like maybe you didn't put in as much thought as I just did. <laughs> no, but I will tell you there's an additional level of poetry to my ultimate selection of uh, the name of professional hobo, because actually, if you look at the historical meaning of the word hobo and what hobos were, that harkens back to the 1930s right. around the around the Depression times. Uh, in North America, specifically the States, when migrant workers would hop on trains and they would hop on the backs of freight trains to, to get passage to a new location where they would hop off, look for work uh, wherever the, that destination was. And, and when that work dried up, they'd hop on the next train to a new destination. And one of the other themes of my travels uh, through all these years has actually been a, a virtual evangelical love of long distance train travel. And I've done some of the uh, craziest train stunts that have even resulted in uh, a book uh, about train travel. So not only do I have the, the homeless bohemian working at every location, but I have the love of train travel as well. So I think it was divine uh, origins that the, that the name Professional Hobo came from. What, what's the name of your uh, train travel book? 
It's called Tales of Trains, where the journey is the destination. Nora, you talk about financially sustainable travel. As a financial planner in a previous life, what does financially sustainable travel mean to you? I kind of inadvertently coined the word financially with the term financially sustainable travel. Uh, and the, the most common misconception is that it is synonymous with budget travel. So uh, my, my mission is to demonstrate that financially sustainable travel is its own entity and is its own way of, of living. And it, it's based on three pillars. Uh, the first one is earning income remotely. So you can earn it anywhere uh, you are in the world. The second pillar is spending the money you earn wisely. And that can be uh, a matter of, I mean, I, I've become an expert in getting free accommodation around the world. Uh, I fly long haul in business class for less than the price of economy. So there's a lot of kind of special travel hacking tips and tricks uh, that allow you to live and travel very well without spending as much money as you might think. And the third pillar, is to balance the two, balance the money you're making and the money you're spending so that you can travel for as long as you wish as a lifestyle. You mentioned earning income remotely. This is gets into the digital nomad lifestyle. Is this something that you're currently practicing, digital nomad? Yes, I have been. I traveled full time for a little over 12 years. Uh, I do have a home base now uh, back in my hometown of Toronto, Canada, but I continue to travel cumulatively for about six months of every year. So uh, some people may say I've lost my official title of digital nomad in that I do have a home base, but I continue to be able to work from wherever I am in the world, which allows me to travel at will and for as long as I wish. For example, I just came back from four months uh, of travel. I'm not a big fan of winter. I grew up in Canada. <laughs> I know winter. I know I don't like it. So I make a point of trying to avoid winter every year. And I have that flexibility and that ability because I can earn money from anywhere in the world. So this is because you are a financial planner. You have this skill. You had this professional life prior to going out on the road. What do you tell folks who are thinking, I'd like to become a digital nomad, but I'm not sure exactly how I would earn money? It's a great question and I get it all the time. Uh, and I would say actually my financial planning experience has less to do with how I developed a, a, a location independent career. Uh, although admittedly I used that experience in developing my business. Uh, but you definitely don't have to be a financial planner or anything close to a financial planner to have a successful location independent career. Uh, there are more and more companies out there now that are hiring employees remotely to work uh, in a telecommuting capacity. So you don't even necessarily have to be an entrepreneur or a business person in order to have the ability to earn money remotely. Uh, and, and more and more careers and possibilities are, are, are opening up on a, almost a daily basis. I read a statistic that said uh, uh, a very large percentage, uh, I think it was 40% of the North American population will very soon have the ability to work remotely. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that 40% uh, of North America is going to sell everything and start traveling the world full time, but it certainly does mean that we have more and more freedom. Perhaps for some people, that freedom is uh, to not have to deal with commuting and to be able to be at home with the children uh, in a different way uh, than they would have had they had to go into an office every day. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways to be location independent uh, that aren't necessarily traveling the world full time. You said something else, Nora, that made my ears prick up, which was flying long haul 
uh, in business class for less than the cost of economy. I'm always looking. <laughs> that was a good little nugget. Yeah, I just it was. <laughs> I was like, okay. I wrote, in fact, I wrote it down because I definitely wanted to go back to that. I'm always looking for flight deals. How do you hack this? So it's through the creative use of frequent flyer miles that I'm able to travel uh, and fly long haul in business class for less than the price of economy. Uh, it definitely takes some uh, finessing. Uh, residents of the states in Canada will have the best or the most opportunities uh, to to do this kind of thing because of the opportunities that we have available to us, for example, with credit cards that have lucrative sign-up bonuses uh, in the forms of many points. Uh, it definitely takes a while to learn the game. Uh, but it, it can pay off in spades uh, if you're willing to play it. But more so than that, uh, it, the, the, the nugget that I was actually hoping you would pick up on is the free accommodation nugget. <laughs> Talk that uh, too, yes. I saved, I saved over $100,000 on accommodation expenses in my 12 years of full-time travel. Uh, and in so doing, I also had very rewarding cultural experiences. I was able to experience life uh, around the world in a way that uh, you just cannot experience if you're staying in hotels and hostels along the way. Uh, there are five different forms of, of free accommodation. Uh, I do, of course, I've written a book about this as well. It's called How to Get Free Accommodation Around the World. Uh, but it has, it shaped how I traveled the world. Uh, and also, uh, especially in the beginning years, made it possible uh, as I was developing my location independent career, I wasn't making a lot of money in the initial years. Uh, so to have this creative way to live around the world and save boatloads of money uh, was really instrumental. You know, after after airfare, maybe accommodations or even accommodations themselves might be the most expensive part of travel. What's the one top tip that you would give people to get free or low cost accommodations? Accommodation is unquestionably the most expensive aspect of travel. Uh, and the, it, there's a few tips, uh, I can offer, uh, probably the, the number one tip is actually to travel slowly. And that actually uh, applies, uh, not only to accommodation, but also to the, to the transportation expense. The more planes, trains, and automobiles you're getting on, the more quickly you're changing your destinations, the more money you will inherently spend. So, uh, and then of course, also with accommodation, if you are staying somewhere a little bit longer, you have more opportunities available to spend less money on accommodation than you would if you were paying top rate to spend uh, at a hotel or even a hostel every night. Uh, so the, the traveling slowly is certainly, it's, it's a gift, not only financially, but also culturally, uh, if you wish to experience the world uh, in a different way. It's also an, a downright necessity uh, for someone with a location-independent career because, uh, you know, if you work every day, you don't have that much time to actually, on a daily basis, to actually get out and explore your destination. So if you really want to feel like you've covered it, you need to stay there for longer. And I think one of the big rewards that you get by staying in one place longer is if you go to the same coffee shop every morning, if you go to the same grocery store to do your shopping, the local folks get to know you and they start asking you questions. You can ask them questions and you can have really a richer experience than if you're going in for two days and then you're off to the next location. You you could you hit the nail on the head right there, uh, and that's one of the more rewarding aspects for me of traveling. Uh, I'll often arrive at a new destination and be completely overwhelmed. I don't know 
where to get anything, how to function uh, in this in this new place. I don't know where the supermarkets are. I don't know how to get around. And and as I stay there and I learn, you know, where the where the places, you know, where's the best place to get cheese and where's the, you know, how do the supermarkets work here and the transportation and the little secret spots that the tourists don't know about and and the best restaurants to eat that are that are very local experiences. That's incredibly rewarding. Um, I remember being in in Vietnam, and I was uh, I spent six weeks in Hoi An, uh, and, but I wasn't in the center of Hoi An. I was about a, a forty five minute walk outside, so I was in a very local area, uh, and it had a little uh, outdoor marketplace, which is is very common in Vietnam, and that was where everyone does their shopping. It's where they get their fresh produce, uh, and in some cases, uh, the little restaurant stalls as well. And I remember in one of my first few days of uh, of going to this market, uh, very soon there was a lady uh, who ran a fruit and vegetable stall. And she was so friendly and she was so much fun uh, that uh, I, she, you know, she was always so excited whenever I came. Uh, and when we would have these fabulous conversations with very little more than sign language and, and we'd learn little, she'd teach me words and I'd teach her words. And uh, it was, it was it was so rewarding. And to see her face light up every time I walked into the marketplace and to have this interaction, which was so lighthearted and I mean, ridiculous in so many ways, but so much fun, uh, was really a rewarding experience. Uh, and, and that happened, that's happened over and over again for me in my travels. Uh, and to be able to, to really, for me, travel is about the human connection. So when you were able to have that human connection and to have it with someone who isn't paid to have that connection with you, like someone who doesn't work in the hospitality industry uh, uh, and yet uh, you have this great connection uh, with them is, is really very rewarding. You know, this is what I love about your website, professionalhobo.com, is that you give personal stories of both the highs and the lows of long-term <laughs> travel. And you're very honest about it. I, I find it very refreshing because so many travelers, full-time travelers are like, everything's great, you know, but <laughs> you really give the, the down low on what's going on. Uh, you gave us a nice story of, uh, of Vietnam, but maybe share with us a story of misfortune or bad luck that you've had on the road. To be perfectly honest, I wouldn't know how to choose. I mean, I've survived three natural disasters. I've contracted three tropical diseases. Oh, I'm hoping that both come in threes and that <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I'm done. Um, uh, I was in a near fatal accident. Uh, I accidentally started an international NGO on the road. I guess you could call that a good luck story out of uh, a bad luck event of being near a natural disaster. Uh, I've had my passport stolen. I've had uh, various various interactions of of unsavory natures i've had more breakups than i would care to admit to right. um but by the same token and i and i quite frankly i love to tell these stories too because in many ways i believe that misadventures make for the for the greatest stories uh and i try to tell them in a way that doesn't necessarily discourage people from from wanting to travel at all but like you say paints a very real picture because you know what Stuff happens, and it happens regardless of whether or not you travel. It could happen at home, and it could happen abroad. Uh, and the the one of the things that I'm really attentive to doing on my website is educating people on how to prepare themselves, how to prepare yourself financially, 
physically, uh, logistically, so that you can travel and know that you have the ability to deal with whatever stuff might come your way. Because at some point or another, it's going to come your way. And in traveling, we do expose ourselves to more uh, vulnerabilities, shall we say, than we would if, if we were at home. For example, I bring my laptop everywhere with me when I travel uh, I, because I need it to earn a living. Uh, but now having, you know, taking my laptop out of, you know, out of my home exposes it to uh, additional risks of damage or being stolen more so than if I were just stayed at home and left my laptop at home. So being able to, that doesn't mean we shouldn't travel. It just means we need to, to hedge our bets. Uh, and I have a whole section on my website called Travel Lifestyle Guides, which uh, is, is extremely detailed uh, about all of these aspects of travel, how to insure yourself, how to prepare for travel, how to make sure that you know how to deal with the stuff that comes your way, how to arrange your finances. I, the list goes on. I was reading the story on your website about losing your passport and this or get actually got stolen if I'm not mistaken. And mm -hmm. this really rang true to me because I'm the kind of person, I guess we're alike in a similar way that, you know, when my girlfriend and I go traveling, I make photocopies of everything to keep separate from the actual document, the passport, yep. et cetera. You had your passport stolen. You were a good doobie and had a copy of your passport with you and still and still you almost got screwed over because of that could you give a little more detail about that because i just was blown away by the story i'm like i do that am i going to get screwed if I, my passport gets stolen well basically i was in the caribbean and it was it was just really a whole series of unfortunate circumstances that led to my passport being stolen uh which i i, I won't bore anybody with here uh but it, it was you can read about it on my site uh, but once it was stolen, uh, I had to, um, someone had told me, so I, th this is where I'm going to be really honest. This is the story that I didn't even write on my website, but I, I'm, I'm going to tell it here. And the story is that actually um, I had to fill in a police report. Uh, and someone had told me that if I fill in a report saying it's stolen, there's a lot of extra hoops that I had to jump through. And the problem was I didn't have any time to jump through hoops because I had a house sitting gig in Panama that I had to be at in three days. And I was in the Caribbean with no passport. So what I was applying for was I needed an emergency passport to get back to Toronto so where I could apply for uh, a 24-hour turnaround and get a new passport and fly down to Panama. Because in Grenada, there was no Canadian consulate. So I was told it was going to take me three weeks to replace my passport had I stayed in Grenada. Aye, aye, aye. So I had the action, but then I was told that if I reported it as stolen, I wouldn't be able to push this through. So I reported it as lost. I'm a bad girl. <laughs> this was where I ran into trouble because when the fellow who was um, issuing the, the uh, immigration, who was issuing the emergency passport, he looked at me, he said, you're very prepared. You're too pre you've got copies of passports. You've got all these things. How could you possibly have lost your passport? I don't believe you. And I was like, oh, no, I've been caught in the lie. I don't know what to do. This is terrible. What is going to happen? I just want to get home. I need to get the passport. So that was where the things went extra wrong. And perhaps this is the cautionary tale. Always tell the truth. Um, but even if that wasn't, I, the funny, the funny ending to this story was before I left Canada, I got a tattoo on my lower back. It was my first tattoo. I, I didn't realize at the time it was a tramp stamp, but apparently it is. <laughs> 
I thought it was a beautiful artistic representation of my love of Canada. <laughs> so it, it, it basically, it has a little Canadian maple leaf. And I, and I jokingly told people that I got the tattoo uh, because then that way, if I woke up one day in a foreign country naked on a beach, uh, I could stumble into the nearest consulate and start the process of getting my paperwork back. Wait, these things happen, I, Nora, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Who else would have a tattoo like this? Um, so I, I was able to, uh, in the throes of feeling like uh, things were about to go horribly wrong with this immigration officer in Grenada, I said, look, I have a tattoo. <laughs> it proves that I'm Canadian. Please just give me my, my document. I want to get back to Canada. And I showed him this tattoo. And I, I don't, he didn't know what to do. I mean, he's not used to, to foreigners showing them their backsides in such ways. Um, <laughs> so he, he kept as straight a face as he possibly could as he stamped and signed the document and handed it over to me. So all's well that ends well. <laughs> you know, it's like that's that's got to be the least Canadian story I've ever heard. Because <laughs> no Canadian is going to, from my interactions with Canadians, no Canadian's going to do that. But anyway, he didn't know that. You got through. <laughs> story has an exactly. happy ending. So that's great. Um, now, Nora, you just returned from a long-term stay in Crete. And... I'm not sure that most Americans could pick Crete out of a off of a world map. Um, tell us a little bit about Crete, where it is, and a little bit about what it's like in Crete. Crete is the largest island in Greece. Uh, it's also the furthest south, so technically, it is the the most southern point in Europe. Uh, and Crete as a, as a, it's, it's more so a country than an island, uh, in terms of its relation to Greece and to Greek culture. Uh, Crete has, uh, you know, it has ruins and, and history that dates back to Minoan times. Uh, and, uh, it has, it's also right in the center of, of a really interesting, um, kind of section. I mean, there's Turkey is, is, is closer to Crete in some ways than, uh, Athens is. Uh, so you've got Libya to the south, Egypt uh, also to the south, a little bit further away, Turkey and Greece. So historically, it has been an incredibly important um, uh, point of trade for thousands of years. Uh, and in fact, the port uh, in Hanya, which is the, the city in Crete that I stayed in, uh, is the most um, influential port in all of Europe. It's a really, it's, a, it's an interesting mix of uh, cultures uh, and, uh, I mean, so I was able to get a lot of obviously Greek culture, but the Cretans also have uh, a way of life, uh, and of course a cuisine, uh, that they consider all their own. Uh, and I have to say, I was, <laughs> I, I was going to Greece. Uh, I, I live in Toronto. I live in uh, Greek town. Uh, Toronto is a, for anyone who doesn't know, it's the most multicultural city in the world. And it is a, a collection of, in many of different neighborhoods, different ethnic uh, neighborhoods. You can walk for, for hours and, and walk through, you know, Greek town and little Italy and 13 different Chinatowns and, uh, various cultures. So I live in Greek town, but I, I never eat Greek food for some reason. I don't, I don't really like it that much. So I, I went to Greece to challenge that, that perception that I don't like Greek food, uh, and to see if just like, uh, how Guinness is better in Ireland. Right. I wanted to see if Greek food was better in Greece. Uh, and let me tell you, it is. <laughs> um, 
I gained a whole new appreciation for Greek food uh, and Cretan food in particular. I ate so many things that I, I'm actually kind of heartbroken because I don't know that I'll ever be able to find those foods outside of Crete, uh, but I will do my best. So let's talk about some of those foods because, you know, that's why we're here talking about food. And um, I've never been to Crete I would love to know what some of the favorite dishes that you had while you were in Crete were. Well, first of all, I, I, a conversation, a culinary conversation about Crete could not be had without first and foremost mentioning cheese. Uh, the Cretans' love of cheese rivals the French. And in fact, the French will probably be very disappointed to hear that uh, there is actually evidence that the Cretans invented cheese. Oh, wow. Uh, in Homer's The Odyssey, he actually describes the process of making mizitra, which is one of the forms of cheese that you can find uh, in Crete. Uh, and it's delicious, by the way. So uh, there are they may not have quite the variety of cheeses that you might find in a place like France, uh, but uh, talk about delicious. Uh, they have a lot of a lot of cheese that is not only uh, cow based, but in fact, actually, uh, their their expertise relies more in sheep and goat cheese, um, sheep's and goats uh, or being what the land can sustain. The, the Cretans, uh, the Cretan diet is really predicated on sustainability. Uh, and uh, for thousands of years now, uh, it, it actually hasn't changed very substantially because it's been based on what the land can produce and sustain. And sheep and goats are much more sustainable in Crete than, uh, than cows are. So you see a lot of that reflected in the cheese and in the diet overall. We've got sheep's milk's cheese. We've got goat's milk cheese. And when, when I think of those, especially sheep's milk's cheese, I often think of, you know, more fragrant, more flavorful cheeses, what I, what I call stinky feet cheeses. Um, <laughs> is, is this the kind of cheese that we would expect to have in Crete? You can definitely find some stinky feet cheese. Uh, and you can also find some very fresh, very uh, mild cheeses. There's one fresh cheese that you can get that is, it's so fresh, it's, it's kind of half liquid and half solid. Like it's, it's really liquidy and it, you get it in a bag and it is, uh, I mean, I just eat it with a spoon. Like it is so good. Oh, yum. Uh, there's so, so there's definitely a huge variety of cheeses. I went to a, an open air market. They had a, in Crete in Hania, they had many open air markets, uh, throughout the week. And this is where the locals buy their, um, buy their stuff. And it literally just, uh, uh, they'll take over two city blocks, uh, in a, in a fairly residential neighborhood and set up all kinds of stalls. And, and I found this cheese guy and uh, <laughs> he, he had these fabulous, I mean, he was so much fun to interact with, uh, but he would just give me, every time I went to see him, he would give me sample upon sample upon sample of cheese. So I tried all these different kinds of cheese. Uh, and I remember trying one cheese at one point and I said, oh my God, because it was so good. And he said, don't bring him into this. He has nothing to do with this cheese. So, and then, so he had me in stitches and then he would bring out the Raki. This is now, this is another aspect of Cretan culture that, that, um, blows my mind and, and Greek. Yeah. Culture. Tell people about Raki. So Raki is, it's basically like the, 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 Cretan moonshine. And it has another name uh, that I can't pronounce to starts with a T S Suzuki. 
I don't know, but informally it's known as Rocky. Uh, and it's, it's, um, similar to grappa in Italy and in other places it's made from, it's a, it's a very highly distilled alcohol made from grapes. It's incredibly strong. Uh, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't really like it. Um, but, <laughs> but it can taste a lot better when they turn it into racomolo, which is they heat it up and add honey and cinnamon and make it taste all sweet and lovely. Oh, nice. Okay. But Rocky is everywhere. So if you go to a restaurant, you will be presented with Rocky at the end of the meal. It's complimentary. They bring out a little bottle and two shot glasses, and you have as much or as little as you want. Um, also, if you stop for directions in the countryside, <laughs> there's a good chance someone might offer you a shot of Rocky. Um, my, my cheese guy at 11 in the morning, you know, after we'd had a little a little fun chat, he's offering a shot of Rocky. Uh, you know, I went into a store to buy some jewelry. I'm offered Rocky. So it's, I, I have to say, I'm not a big drinker, nor did I particularly like Rocky uh, in, in terms of the taste. Uh, but it's a it's a really integral part of the culture. Uh, and uh, I was told by a local friend that if you don't drink or if you don't want to drink something that has been offered to you, you simply touch it to your lips. Uh, and that will suffice. If you refuse a drink, you are offending them. I'll tell you, we um, you, you can find stuff similar to this all over the Balkan Peninsula. And when we were in Croatia, they have something called rakia. And it's the same thing, basically. It's Croatian moonshine. It's distilled from grape skins and seeds. And the very first night we were in Croatia, the shots were just coming fast and furious and i was i was doing my best to keep up but my girlfriend after a couple of these she did exactly what she said she put it to her lips and then she kind of snuck it down by her hip and poured it into a plant (laughs) (laughs) i'm like that plant's gonna be dead tomorrow you know that don't you (laughs) so let's talk about uh you mentioned the cheeses Nora, and how would these be served? Um, specifically, would we get cheese on a salad in Crete? Well, absolutely, you would get cheese on a salad. Uh, there, there's the Greek salad, which you would get all over Greece, which is uh, uh, <laughs> unlike the way you might get it in North America with lettuce. That's considered sacrilege <laughs> in Greece. Uh, a Greek salad in its purest form is just uh, tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, red onion, maybe some black olives, and a chunk like a brick of feta cheese there's no crumbling going on here it is a brick of cheese and then enough olive oil to make it almost more like soup than it is salad i mean the guys these guys pour on the olive oil like there's no tomorrow and that is actually one of the apparently one of the secrets to the longevity of the cretans cretans uh, have historically enjoyed longer lives than most other people and one of those reasons there's many reasons but one of them uh, is apparently the olive oil so i jumped on that bandwagon and enjoyed it very much um but one of my first um experiences with uh cheese in crete uh, came uh, when I was uh, I arrived at my accommodation in Hanya and the the host the uh, the owner of the apartment that I was renting a uh, very lovely woman she um, she's Greek and she had lived in Hanya for uh, 30 years but she had uh, been raised in New Zealand so she was like the perfect cultural buffer because she was very obviously Greek uh, she you know was married to a Greek man 
man, had Greek children, obviously spoke Greek, had Greek parents, but then she also spoke English impeccably. And she had that delightful New Zealand accent that I just adore. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was able to speak to her with, you know, with Western sensibilities and or with North American sensibilities and say, you know, why, why does this happen? And who does that? And where do I go for that? And she was very helpful in that sense. But one of the wonderful things that she did uh, was in preparation for uh, my arrival, she, uh, she stocked the kitchen. Uh, not only with olive oil, as you do, uh, and Greek coffee and honey and uh, a bunch of things, but she also um, gave me the ingredients for something uh, called dacos. And this is a very Cretan dish. Uh, oh, good. Let's talk about dacos. Yes. What it is, is a, it's a barley rusk. This is, these are very popular in Crete. They're, they're, <laughs> it's like a, you took a, a, like a brown, like a barley flour hamburger bun, chopped it in half and let it dry to the point where it's like a rock. Like <laughs> I looked at these things and went, I don't know what I'm supposed <laughs> to do. But you take a barley rusk. It's, so it's very, very um, firm, very dry and hard. And then you grate a tomato. I didn't even know you could grate tomatoes, quite frankly, but you can. And it just turns into pulp. Right, so you grate a tomato over it, uh, and that now the, the juices of the tomato start to seep into the the dog, the the rusk beneath it. On top of that, you put mazithra cheese, which is this lovely. It's kind of like the Cretan version of cream cheese. Uh, it's very uh, whipped cream cheese, even because it's very uh, very light uh, and creamy, and it's also but it's also got a little tang to it. Um, that is very pleasant, not off-putting for people who don't like tangy cheese. Um, and then on top of that, you drizzle some olive oil and uh, sprinkle a little oregano. And that's it. It's very simple. And then the, the trick with dacos is, is allowing the tomato to soak into it enough that you don't break a tooth when you right, right. when you when you bite into it, um, but not so long that it falls apart completely. <laughs> so there's there's definitely an art to eating dacos. Uh, very Cretan, very special. And it's also a, an offshoot of if you uh, go to Crete and you order a Cretan salad, it may look from the top to be a Greek salad, but actually in the bottom of the bowl will be these barley rusks that have been soaking in olive oil and some of the other salad ingredients that are sitting on top of it. So that's that dacos are divine. Uh, and the Crete salad as well. Um, it adds a, it makes the salad more of a meal than an appetizer. Normally, if you order a Greek salad, you think of it as an appetizer. If you order a Cretan salad and if you're not sharing it with anybody, that could be your meal. I love the sound of this dacos, and I'd never heard of it until we decided that we were going to talk, and I started to do some research on this, and I said, dacos, this sounds spectacular. I just love the sound of it, even more than a Greek salad, and heck, I love a Greek salad. Um, let's talk about another dish in Crete that's uh, relatively well-known called the, uh, Cal and I'm probably butchering this name, Kalitsunya. Um, you know what? That sounds good to me. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's, I, I can't believe the number of times that I, uh, ended up saying while I was in Crete, it's all Greek to me. Um, the, it, it was, it, it was with no small degree of irony that I found myself, uh, in many cases, just butchering the pronunciation of names, uh, with the, with the different alphabet, uh, and, uh, you know, different accents. Uh, it was often difficult to, uh, to understand what was going on, but Kalitz. Sunya 
is a, a Cretan pie. Uh, and like many Cretan foods, it can go a lot of different directions. Like it's really, that's just a very general way. And, and by pie, I mean, it's like three inches in diameter. They're, they're little single serving delights. Uh, now the, the, the traditional Cretan kalatsunya is filled with like a sweet cheese. So it's a, it's, um, a, a desserty type of experience. Uh, and you can see the cheese out the top. So the pie doesn't completely cover the, the, what's inside. You can see it kind of poking out the top. Um, so, uh, it's, <laughs> it's very good, <laughs> but it also refers to, uh, it could be filled with, uh, spinach, uh, a la Spanakopita, right. but it's the Cretan version of Spanakopita. So that's there, there, you can definitely get Spanakopita in Crete. Uh, I can, <laughs> I can verify that many times over. Um, but if you're looking for the, the real, uh, McCoy with regards to Cretan cuisine, you would get the Cretan version thereof, which is basically a little square packet. Uh, and instead of phyllo pastry, they use a, a, a dough that has a little more substance to it. Uh, and again, with the delightful fillings of spinach, uh, and or cheese. So more like a, a pie crust or more like a calzone crust? Neither. Okay. <laughs> um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little more, it's thinner. It's a much thinner oh, okay. dough. Enough to def that you could definitely hold it and it won't fall apart, but not so much that you would, you're going to get overwhelmed with carbs. And what about this uh, dish called uh, bureki? <laughs> now, bureki is, that was a definite favorite of mine. Uh, and you couldn't get it everywhere. Uh, it was, I, I found that when I went to a place that had bureki, uh, <laughs> I jumped all over it. It's a, it's also a seasonal dish. Now, traditionally, uh, they make it with whatever they have. Uh, so uh, when zucchinis are in season, uh, that's they grow in abundance in Crete. And you'll see a lot of foods that are zucchini-based. Uh, for example, stuffed zucchini flowers. Uh, they would use the same sort of thing that you would have stuffed, um, like in stuffed cabbage leaves. Um, but when the zucchinis are in season, uh, they stuff the zucchini flour uh, with this lovely rice mixture. Um, so, oh, my favorite. I know, it's so good. Um, when zucchinis are in season, that is traditionally what they use to make bureki. And it's it's basically a, a layered pie with very thin slices of zucchini, potato, uh, cheese, which is usually a mazithra or a mazithra-like cheese, and then sometimes a, a thin crust of dough on the bottom or the top. If zucchinis aren't in season, you might see bureki being made with pumpkin. Uh, and it's the same idea. It's this layered pie, very thin slices of potatoes and whatever vegetable is in season and the cheese and maybe some dough. Uh, and it's it's absolutely divine. My understanding is the secret ingredient uh, is, and I would never have known this had I not read this or been told this, but the secret ingredient is mint, spearmint okay. in particular. Nice. You can't, can't taste it. But that, as soon as someone told me that, I was like, "Oh, that's what it is." Uh, so it's it's a it's a fascinating use of. I don't normally like spearmint as the taste, but uh, in buraki, I couldn't get enough of it. All these dishes you're describing, Nora, sound very rustic to me. Um, would we be getting these in like little restaurants in 
outdoor stalls. How, how do we find all of these wonderful dishes that you're talking about in Crete? So the Kalatsunia you're going to find in uh, bakeries. And there's, I mean, if you throw a stone, you're likely to hit at least one bakery, uh, especially in, in a town like uh, Hanya. Uh, and outside of Hanya is made up of, uh, of a, there's, a, there's a, an old historic town with a beautiful Venetian harbor. Uh, that's very beautiful, um, but it's a little less functional than the rest of Hanya, just outside of that, where uh, Again, you know, on the main square, I think there's five bakeries uh, on one square, right, you know, right. like, so there's bakeries everywhere. And that's where you find the Kalatsunya. Um, you will find the cheese uh, in cheese shops. Again, they're all over the place. Uh, and uh, things like Mizithra, uh, and you can, I mean, you just bring a container and they will fill it and weigh it and, you know, pay you with, uh, and you pay for it. Um, the, that fresh cheese that I was telling you about that's very almost liquidy. I mean, it's so cheap, one euro. And I get, you get this ball of cheese that's bigger than I, but I could, I can compare it to, I guess, the size of a softball. Um, so it's it's really quite amazing and, and very well priced. Uh, the buraki, uh, the Cretan salad, uh, the dacos for that matter as well, you would get in restaurants. Uh, but like I say, you, you might not find them in all restaurants. Uh, so it, it depends on the, I mean, the Cretan salad and the dacos, yes, you would find in many restaurants. I ate in a lot of little local restaurants. Uh, and again, you'll find a lot of those in Crete. Um, one of the things that I found really refreshing, uh, was I visited in the winter season. So it was not overrun with tourists at all. And, uh, I asked a local friend of mine, we were, we were in the old town, uh, which, which is fairly obviously where a lot of the tourists would spend their time. Uh, and I said, you know, how many people, I said, this is the off season. There aren't really many, if any tourists here, but there, the restaurants are still, you know, there's still a number of people in a lot of these restaurants are these locals. And he said, yeah, he said, even in the tourist season, um, this is one of those places where the, where the locals and the tourists go to the same places. Nice. Uh, there, you're, you're not going to find so many places that are strictly tourist joints, uh, and others that are strictly local places. Um, there's a, a beautiful harmony between the two. Uh, and one that I was able to experience more in the off season than perhaps uh, you would in the uh, in the high season, which is the summer uh, in particular, where, uh, you know, my understanding is it's a very different place. There's it's it's uh, for lack of a better word, I would say it's overrun with tourists, uh, although I don't know if it's necessarily, um, you know, that that has a, a connotation these days with with the over tourism movement. I don't know if it's over touristed, but it's definitely highly touristed. Uh, so I was lucky to see that different side of it. You know, you talked about some of these restaurants. Give us uh, one or two of your favorite restaurants in Crete that folks might want to visit when when they have their vacation there. So my time in Crete was uh, solely uh, relegated to the town of Hanya. Uh, and just in case you're wondering uh, how to spell Hanya, uh, it's probably not uh, the way you would think it is. It's C-H-A-N-I-A. Never would have got Hanya. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I thought I would say it. Hanya is one of three main towns in Crete. Uh, the the and it's on the uh, on the all the three main towns are on the north coast. Hanya is the furthest to the west. In the middle is Rethymno, and on the right is Arachlion. Uh And and that starts with an H, just in case you were wondering, Arachlion. Uh Arachlion is where you're going to find Knossos, which is are, are the main ruins. Uh, and have um, great mythological meanings and, and date back to Minoan times. So many people will find themselves in Heraklion. 
I can't speak to Heraklion uh, as a place nor the restaurants, but I can definitely speak to Hanya. Uh, and uh, one of my absolute favorite restaurants was one that I discovered, uh, luckily, I just I stumbled upon it very early in my visit, which meant uh, I, I had many opportunities to go back. And it's called Secret Flavors. Uh, it has a ridiculously high rating on Google, which is how I found it. It's got a 4.9, uh, which is almost unheard of, especially for the, the number of reviews there are. And it's well-deserved. This is home-cooked local Cretan cuisine. Uh, and it, I loved the experience because I went in there and, and, uh, it was dinner time or it was, it was, let's get it right. It was North American dinner time, which is, has nothing to do with dinner time in Crete. Right. Um, so the, so the place was empty. Um, and, uh, the, the fellow who was running the place, uh, his, his English was, was minimal. So, uh, he, he basically handed us the menu and gave us like 30 seconds to look at it and then said, come with me. And he took us into the kitchen and he showed us what he was cooking, like what, what, what specials he'd made wow. for the day. And basically we didn't need to look at the menu again. We just pointed at what we wanted. Uh, and this was where I had my first buraki. It's where I had epic stuffed, uh, zucchinis and tomatoes and peppers. Uh, there were rabbit stews and, and, and beef and red sauce and rooster and all kinds of different, uh, meat based stews. Uh, but those who don't eat meat would have been well satisfied with the vegetarian, uh, and even vegan options that, uh, that were there. And they were so hospitable uh, and uh, it just, it was a great feeling. The food was incredible and the prices were great. So that really tops my list of favorite places to eat in Hanya. Um, there are definitely others that I could speak about if you want me to. Sure. Yeah. Give us another. That one sounds fantastic. So give me another one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, for seafood lovers, uh, we are, listen, we're, we're in, we're in Crete. We're right on the Mediterranean Sea. Exactly. We're on an island. So, uh, there's an abundance of seafood. Uh, for me, my favorite seafood restaurant might not have been, uh, what people, you know, there's a, there's a, a section of coast that is all seafood restaurants and it's right overlooking the ocean. And, and I, that's delightful. But for me, the seafood restaurant of choice that I went to, um, wasn't really all that close to the sea. I mean, Everything in Crete is close to the sea in the, in the grander scheme of things. But this, you couldn't see the sea from the table. Let's put it that way. Uh, and it was called Maridaki, uh, M-A-R-I-D-A-K-I. And there were uh, many different kinds of seafood. I mean, it was almost an overwhelming different uh, menu of different kinds of seafood. Uh, the calamari was uh, melt-in-your-mouth beautiful. Uh, and uh, I also had a marinated um, fish uh, appetizer. It's kind of like the Cretan version of ceviche, uh, that also had kind of an avocado puree, uh, worked into it, uh, that was just epic. Um, but they have got a huge list of fresh fish, uh, that they cook in a variety of different ways. Uh, that, so I could definitely highly recommend, uh, Maridaki as well. Nora Dunn, the professional hobo, before we let you go, Tell us where we can reach you and also where we can get all of your books, because you're filled with some of the most wonderful travel tips that I've ever had on this show. So I definitely want other folks to be able to uh, get them as well. Well, you definitely, the best place to start is uh, at theprofessionalhobo.com. Uh, you'll be able to find everything you need from there. Uh, and I can also send you uh, some links to uh, specifically to uh, any one of my books uh, if anyone is interested uh, in clicking on that in the show notes. Perfect. We'll have all that in the show notes. Nora Dunn, The Professional Hobo, thank you for being on Destination Eat Drink. We look forward to seeing you somewhere down the road. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for having me.
There you go. My favorite tattoo story of all time. And unlike most tattoo stories, that tattoo story doesn't end in regret, but ends in triumph. Great story from Nora Dunn, the professional hobo. Well, there you go. That's uh, this week's show. But uh, let me remind you to head on over to DestinationEatDrink.com to get your travel fix there as well while you're waiting for next week's show to upload. At DestinationEatDrink.com, I've got foodie travel guides to cities all over the world and a lot of different shorter articles that I've posted on the blog. My most recent one is about movies from different regions of Italy. Italy's comprised of 20 different regions, what we would think of as states here in the U.S., and I picked a favorite movie from each region. And from some regions, it's easier than others. But it's a good article, and I think you'll enjoy it. Go to DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the blog tab. You know, while this pandemic is ongoing, gives me a lot of time to think about the nature of travel. And, you know, travel is really broken down into three components. When we're taking a trip, when we're going on vacation or a family trip or whatever we're doing, you can break it down into three distinct components. You know, there's the planning component, which is always a lot of fun to do. Thinking about the trip, maybe buying a guidebook, doing your research on the internet, making all the reservations and plans and deciding where you're going to stay. And if you're like me, looking at all the different places that you want to eat. And then there's the actual trip itself, which is the shortest part of the experience. You know, the planning part can take months and then you go on the trip and that, even if it lasts a week or a month or even a year, a lot of times the planning portion is longer than the actual portion of doing the trip. But the longest portion of the travel experience is the memories portion. And that's kind of the portion that I've been focusing on lately with this pandemic because can't really travel. I've had a couple of trips that have been canceled. Don't know when I'm getting on a plane again. But the memories part that can last for years, for your entire life, really. For me, when my father died, my brothers and I, we talked on the phone about, you know, remembering our father. But also one thing that we did a lot of was talking about the trips that we took, both as a family and individual father-son trips that we had taken. And we had a lot of fun making fun of the old man and uh, remembering stupid little kid stuff that we did. And some of these stories are 40, even 50 years old, and they're still in our collective memory, me and my brothers. So that got me to thinking that, you know, really the trip is a lot of fun, but the remembering the trip, the stories that we tell about the trips that we take, that's the really the longest lasting part of travel. Destination Eat Drink has been distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. My name's Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>